Letter three of Young Americans Abroad, or Vacation in Europe, Travels in England, France, Holland, Belgium, Prussia, and Switzerland, edited by J. O. Chules, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter three, Liverpool, dear Charlie, well we have fairly commenced our travel, and yet I can scarcely realize the fact that I am here in old England and that, for some months at least, I shall be away from home and the occupations of the schoolroom. The next day after landing we went to the custom-house to see our fellow-passengers pass their effects, and really felt glad to think of our good fortune in landing everything at night and direct from the ship. It was an exciting scene, and I was not a little amused to observe the anxiety of the gentlemen to save their cigars from the duty imposed, which amounts to nine shillings sterling per pound. All sorts of contrivances were in vogue, and the experiences of men were various, the man with one hundred, perhaps, being brought up, while his neighbor with five hundred passed off successfully, and as he cleared the building, seemed disposed to place his finger on the prominent feature of his face. I quite like the appearance of Liverpool. After walking through the principal streets and making a general survey of the shops, no one speaks of store. I think I can testify to the extraordinary cleanness of the city, and the massiveness and grandeur of the public buildings. Our attention was first directed to the cemetery, which had been described, you remember, to us one evening in the study. It is on the confines of the city, and is made but of an old quarry. I liked it better than any cemetery I ever saw. It is unlike all I had seen, and though comparatively small, is very picturesque. I may almost say romantic." The walls are lofty, and are devoted to spacious tombs, and the groundwork abounds in garden shrubbery and labyrinth. Some of the monuments are striking. The access to this resting-place is by a steep cut through the rock, and you pass under an archway of the most imposing character. At the entrance of the cemetery is a neat chapel, and the officiating minister has a dwelling-house near the gate. I wish you could see a building now in progress, and which has taken twelve or fourteen years to erect and from its appearance will not, I suppose, be finished in four or five more. It is called St. George's Hall. The intent is to furnish suitable accommodations for various law courts, and also to contain the finest ballroom in Europe. It is in a commanding position. I know little of architecture, but this building strikes me as one of exquisite beauty. We obtained an order from the mayor to be shown over it and examine the works, and we enjoyed it very much. The great hall will be without a rival in England. The town hall is a noble edifice, and the people are quite proud of it. The interior is finely laid out, and has some spacious rooms for the civic revelries of the fathers of the town. The good woman who showed us round feels complacently enough as she explains the uses of the rooms. The ballroom is ninety feet by forty-six, and forty feet high. The dining and drawing rooms are spacious apartments. On the grand staircase is a noble statue of George Canning, by Chantry, whose beautiful one of Washington we have so often admired in the Boston State House. In the building are some good paintings of the late kings, one or two by Sir Thomas Lawrence. The exchange is directly behind the hall, and contains in the center a glorious bronze monument to Lord Nelson, the joint production of Wyatt and Westmacott. Death is laying his hand upon the hero's heart, and victory is placing a fourth crown on his sword. Ever since I read Southey's Life of Nelson, I have felt an interest in everything relating to this great, yet imperfect man. You know that illustrated work on Nelson that we have so often looked at? It contains a large engraving of this monument. 
As Yankee boys, we found our way to the top of the exchange, to look at the cotton salesroom. The same room has more to do with our good friends at the South than any other in the world. The atmosphere would have been chilly to a Georgian planter, as cotton was down, down. The necropolis is a very spacious burying place, open to all classes, and where persons can be interred with the use of any form desired. The gateway is of stone, and not unlike the granite one at Mount Auburn, and on one side is a chapel, and on the other a house for the register. Not far from this we came to the zoological gardens, kept in excellent order, and where there is a good collection of animals, birds, etc. The collegiate institution is an imposing structure in the Tudor style. St. George's Church, which stands at the head of Lord Street, occupies the position of the old castle, destroyed, I believe, more than one hundred and fifty years ago, and is a very graceful termination to one of the best business avenues in the city. Several of the churches and chapels are in good style, but one of the buildings is, as it should be in a city like this, the sailor's home, not far from the custom house. This is a highly ornamented house, and would adorn any city of the world. The custom house is thought to be one of the finest buildings in the kingdom. It occupied ten years in its erection. It is composed of three facades, from a rusticated pavement, each having a splendid portico of eight ionic columns. The whole is surmounted by a dome one hundred and thirty feet high, and the effect of the building is excellent. The glory of Liverpool is her docks, and a stranger is sure to be pointed to the great landing stage, an immense floating pier, which was moored into its present position on the 1st of June, 1847. This stage is five hundred and seven feet long and over eighty feet wide. This mass of timber floats upon pontoons, which have to support more than two thousand tons. At each end is a light barge. In the Clarence Dock are to be found the Irish and coasting steamers, and to the north are the Trafalgar, Victoria, and Waterloo docks, the Prince's Dock, and the Great Prince's Dock Basin. On the outside of all these is a fine parade, of about one-half a mile, and which affords one of the most beautiful marine promenades in the world, and gives an interesting view of the Cheshire shore, opposite the city. The Prince's Dock is five hundred yards long, and one hundred broad. Vessels, on arriving, discharge on the east side, and take in cargo on the west. Besides all these, there is the Brunswick Dock, the Queen's Dock, the Duke's Dock, the Salt House Dock, etc., the Royal Liverpool Institution is a great benefit to the inhabitants. It has a good library, fine collections of paintings, and a good museum of natural history. Many of these paintings belong to the early masters, and date even before the fifteenth century. We were interested to find here a complete set of casts of the Elgin marbles. The originals were the decorations of the Parthenon at Athens, and are now in the British Museum. As we shall spend some time in that collection, I say no more at present about these wonderful monuments of genius. The Athenaeum and the Lyceum are both fine buildings, and each has a good library, lecture, and newsroom. We were disappointed at finding the Reverend Dr. Raffles, the most eloquent preacher of the city, out of town. He was the successor of Spencer, who was drowned bathing in the Mersey, and his life by Raffles is one of deep interest. The great historical name of Liverpool is William Roscoe, the author of the lies of Leo X and the Medici. I must not omit to tell you that, during our stay, the town was all alive with a regiment of lancers, just arrived from Ireland, on their way to London. They are indeed fine-looking fellows, and are mounted on capital horses. 
I have watched their evolutions in front of the Adelphi with much pleasure, and have been amused to notice a collection of the most wretched-looking boys I ever saw, brought together by the troops. There seems to be more pauperism this week, in Liverpool, than I ever saw in New York in my life. Truly yours, James. End of Letter 3 Read by Sibella Denton All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.